Tonight we will be in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, so if you have a Bible, turn there. If you're using one of the Bibles in front of you there, in the rack, it's on page 987. As you're turning there, let me pray and ask for God's blessing upon the word tonight. Lord, it is our confession that you are coming again, and when you do come again, all will be made right. And so tonight, as we consider that theme from your word here in 1 Thessalonians, we pray you would open the eyes of our hearts. We pray you would give us minds that would be clear and hearts that would be undivided, that we would seek to live in light of your second coming. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So tonight, we'll be looking at this passage, 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, which is about the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ, the second coming. Now, you might think to yourself, why should I even care about this theme or this passage that Christ will come again? Isn't that something that will happen in the future? Isn't that long, long in in, in the future? And and does it have any impact on my life? Does it have any bearing on my life? Well, I know as I consider that question, and as I look out into a world and I see a world full of darkness, a world full of injustice, a world full of chaos, I want things to be right. Right. I desire that the world would be, would be made right again. But it's not just as I look out there, it's when I look in here, in my own heart, when I see my own inconsistency, my own stubbornness, my own fears, my own doubts, my own sin, I want my heart to be made right. And so the second coming of Christ for us should be good news as we think about it. This is a coming day of judgment. Paul tells us that in Uh, several places, but in the book of Acts there, Paul says, God is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and that man is Jesus Christ. At his second coming, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And so here in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians. He's instructing them about this coming day. He's answering several of their questions But ultimately, he wants them to be fully convinced that this day is coming and that they would live lives that are transformed in light of this second coming. And so that's what I want us to see as well tonight as we consider this text. So 1 Thessalonians 5, we're going to start in verse 5 and read through verse 11. So follow along as I read. Paul writes, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So I want us to consider this passage tonight and and ask this question, what does it mean for us to live in light of the second coming of Christ? What does it mean for us to live in the light of of the second coming of Christ. We'll look at it in two main ways. First, that our living will be based upon our ultimate identity. 
that our living in this world will be based on our ultimate identity. And then second, our identity, if we are in Christ, is firmly grounded upon God and his salvation. I want to walk us through those two main themes tonight. So look back at verse 5, and Paul starts by giving these indicatives, these statements that are true. He says, you are children of the light, children of the day. He says that we are not of the night and not of darkness. Paul here is using this theme of light and darkness. This is a major theme in the New Testament. Think of some of the significant verses that you uh, can think of with this theme of light and darkness. John tells us in 1 John that this is the message he proclaims, and this is what it is. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. This is what his message is. This is the ultimate proclamation. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And this same God, amazingly, Paul tells us in Colossians, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his son, the kingdom of light. Same thing Peter tells us, 1 Peter 2, 9, God has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Ephesians 5, 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, so walk as children of the light. And here in this verse in Ephesians, Paul gives us this parenthetical describing the light. And here's what he says. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. This is the light, all that is good and right and true. And Paul says, to live as a children of light, you will actively pursue, you will actively desire these things, all that is good and right and true. And our identity, the way we live our life in this world, will be based on one of these two realities, either a child of light or a child of darkness. So you think about today, this theme of identity, it's a, it's a big theme in our culture today. And what you'll hear in, in, in most people's minds is that your authentic identity is when we are most true to ourselves. Right, be who you are. That, that's sort of the theme of our culture today. And that is a, a, a slightly true statement, but it's ultimately missing this one important question, which Paul is pointing out to us here, is what is your true identity based on? Is it light or is it darkness? If you are of the darkness, your identity will come out as being of the darkness. But if you belong to the light, your life will look like the light, all that is good and right and true. And Paul knows this to be true of himself, and he is inviting the Thessalonians here to join him in this same effort. He's not just commanding them to do something. He's saying, this is who I am, and I want you to join me in this, that we are not of the night, not of darkness, but we are children of the light. And so in verse 6, he says this, let us not sleep. He's including himself in this command, this first person command. Let us do this together. Let us not be asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and let us be sober. He restates it again in verse 8. He says, since we belong to the day, let us be sober. 
So what do these things mean? To be awake or not be asleep and to be sober. What, what do these things mean? Well, we'll think of that first one there for a minute, to, to be awake. What does it mean to be awake? Well, sleep sometimes in this book can mean death. We actually see that in the previous chapter, chapter 4, verse 13, and also in our text in verse 5, or chapter 5, verse 10, there sleep is referencing death, but here in verse 6 and in verse 8, sleep is something a little bit different. Here sleep is a metaphor for being morally and spiritually indifferent. He's saying don't, don't be asleep, don't be indifferent, don't be, don't be spiritually sleeping, but let us be awake so to be awake is the opposite of that. It means to be spiritually and morally alive, spiritually and morally alert, spiritually and morally vigilant. So as one commentator says that this is the moral state of having all systems on and functioning. That's what Paul is asking us. Now any football coach or basketball coach that's good at all knows that to win the game, half the battle is just getting your team ready, getting your team prepared, right? All the pre-game uh, pre interviews, that's pretty much what every coach says, that we need to be ready. We, we need to be, be, be ready for what's coming. And all that prior week has been to prepare for that game coming up, right? To have all systems working, everybody working together, everybody functioning the way they're supposed to. That's what Paul has in mind here, to be awake. That all of our self, our, our head, our hearts, and our hands, everything about us would be spiritually and morally alive and awake. Here there's an echo of Jesus' words in Matthew 25, 13. Jesus says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Be awake, be alert, be watchful. To be watchful means that we stand firm in our faith. It means our faith is strong and it's growing. 1 Corinthians 16, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Being awake also means that we are vigilant to cultivate all the spiritual disciplines. So Colossians 4, 2, be steadfast and constant in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. To be awake and not asleep means that all of our spiritual and moral capacities are working and awake. John Stott says this, he says, let us not sleep or even yawn our way through life or live in our pajamas. Let us stay awake and alert, for then we shall be ready when Christ comes and we will not be taken by surprise. And so if you are a Christian here tonight, if you belong to the light, then you cannot be indifferent or apathetic about spiritual things. And so ask yourself, perhaps that's where you find yourself. You think of church, you think of reading your Bible, you think of prayer, you think of fellowship, and eh, you just think, it's, eh, I could take it or leave it. If that's you tonight, Paul would say, wake up, be alive. Why? Because the day of the Lord is coming. It will come suddenly, it will come unexpectedly, it will come unavoidably. The question is, are you ready for it? So be awake, do not be asleep. He also says, let us be sober, be sober. He contrasts being sober here in verse 7 with getting drunk. And he says two things happen at night, sleep and drunkenness. He's using this metaphor to mean that these are things that are common to the age or the realm of darkness. That this idea of sleep being indifference or lack of awareness or apathy. 
And then this drunkenness, which is a lack of self-control. Both of these things, being asleep, being drunk, are part of what it means to be in the darkness. And so to belong to the day means this is what your life will ultimately look like. But, he says, be sober. Don't be like that. Rather, be sober. What does it mean to be sober? It means that we are exercising moral self-control and self-restraint and having clear thinking in the face of adversity and danger. Right? This idea of self-control and clear thinking. Right? Remember what the light is. The light is anything that is good and right and true. And so to understand the light, to see the light, to desire the light, we need self-controlled lives and we need clear thinking. Peter tells us several things about what it means to be sober. Here's what he says, 1 Peter 1, 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, there's that word, set your hope fully on the grace that, we, that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, prepare your minds, have a mind that is thinking, be sober-minded. And to have a clear mind, a focused mind, means you are able to put your hope fully on the grace that will be revealed when Christ comes. He also says, 1 Peter 4, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Be self-controlled, be sober-minded because your prayers are at stake. So think about how you operate when life seems to be chaotic, when life is undisciplined, when your mind perhaps is cluttered with all sorts of concerns and confusions, how hard is it to pray when life is like that? How hard is it to meditate and reflect on the joys of heaven? Right? It's almost impossible when, when we're in that position. And so Peter is telling us that for the sake of your prayers, for the sake of your own peace, for the sake of your joy as we wait for this second coming, that we can't get these things if our lives lack self-control and if our minds are not clear. So be sober-minded, he tells us. Another reason to be sober-minded, as Peter tells us, is so that we can be on guard against Satan's attacks. 1 Peter 5.8, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. An old Puritan uh, named Richard Sibbs wrote, uh, well, really they were sermons, but he put them all together in this book, and he says this about Satan's attacks. It's a, a long book that he outlines all kinds of things, things that we have inside of us, but also things that come, come to us from the outside. And here's what he says about Satan's attacks. He says, the soul is often cast down by Satan, who is all for casting down and for disquieting. That word disquieting, he means to be unsettled or not at peace. So he's, read that again. He says, the soul is often cast down by Satan, who is all for casting down and for disquieting. For being a cursed spirit, cast and tumbled down himself from heaven, where he is never to come again, he is therefore full of disquiet, carrying a hell about himself. All that he labors for is to cast down and disquiet others that they may be as much as he can accomplish in the same cursed condition with himself. He was not ashamed to set upon Christ with this temptation of casting down 
and thinks Christ's members never low enough till he can bring them as low as himself. See, Satan's only recourse, having been cast down from heaven, is to attack God's creation with the hell that he carries inside of himself. He can't defeat God. He can't do combat against God. And so he must destroy God's creation. And that's what he is doing. He is roaring. He is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful, because he's coming for you. He's coming for me. Paul then, back in our, our text here in 1 Thessalonians 5, he goes on to tell us how we can stay awake and how we can guard our minds. Verse 8, he uses this military metaphor, and he speaks of being clothed with a breastplate of faith and love and with a helmet, which is the hope of salvation. We have this armor to put on, and he calls it faith and love and hope. Faith, love, and hope. John Stott calls these three things the three most eminent Christian graces. Or as Calvin said of these three, that they give us a brief definition of true Christianity. So think about each of these things, faith, hope, and love. Think about them as outward-facing. Faith is directed toward God. Love is directed toward others. And hope is directed toward the future. Or we might say that faith rests on the past, love is working in the present, and hope is looking to the future. And it's these three virtues, these three eminent Christian graces are what keeps our minds sober and what keeps our minds clear and what keeps our minds, our lives self-controlled. John Stott says, together they completely reorient our lives as we find ourselves being drawn upward to God in faith outward to others in love, and on towards the second coming in hope. Faith, hope, and love. In fact, this is what the Thessalonian church was known for. Earlier in chapter 1, Paul commends them for their work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. So you might ask yourself this question, am I known by these things? Am I known, am I known as a man or a woman of strong faith? Am I known by this outward, others-oriented love? And probably the most challenging, I think, for us in today's world as we look out and see all this chaos and things seeming to grow more and more dark by the day, am I known for a steadfast hope? Am I a hopeful person? Church, Paul here is exhorting us to live according to our ultimate identity as children of the light, being guarded, being protected by faith, hope, and love. Romans 13, 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And so we live in light of the second coming by living out this ultimate identity that we have as children of the light. Paul then goes on to ground this identity. He gives us the ground or the basis for it, that our identity is firmly grounded upon God and his salvation. Our identity is firmly grounded upon God and his salvation. Look there at verse 9. Paul begins by saying, For God has not destined us for wrath 
That one little word, for, Paul here is grounding his argument. He's anchoring it in something that is sure and fixed and true. Think about this statement for a minute. God has not destined us for wrath. All through, if, you, if you'd go back and read through this book of 1 Thessalonians, you'll see Paul is contrasting these two different groups of people. He says there's this group that, that does not grieve as others do who have no hope. He says there's this group that are called light and this other group that is called darkness. And now we see there's this group that is destined for wrath, but this other group that's destined for life and salvation. And what he says about this group, this group of light, this group that is destined for salvation, he tells us that God's will is for this. God has destined us for this. This speaks of God's desire, his will, that we are not destined for wrath. This is an amazing thing. You think, where is my life headed? What, what's the ultimate trajectory? What's the ultimate end for my life? And here God is telling us that my will for you is not for wrath. It is not for wrath. And why is that true? Why, why is that the case that my life and all the sin and all the, the wrath that my life deserves? How could God say that my life is not destined for this wrath? Well, he tells us. He says, Christ died for us. That Christ died for us. He's giving us a theology here of sacrifice and substitution that Christ himself would die. There's this sacrifice that's needed to cover and to pay for the wrath that my sin deserves. But he tells us that Christ has died for us so that we might live. He's given us a, a theology of exchange as well, that Christ took my sin in my death and he gives to me his righteousness and his life as a free gift. This exchange has taken place. And so my identity here is built on this good news our identity is only as good as the foundation it's built upon. And here we see that we have the surest of all possible foundations. That here we have a foundation with footings and pilings that go all the way to bedrock. As John Stott says, our hope of salvation is well-founded. It stands firmly on the solid rock of God's will and Christ's death and not on the shifting sands of our own performance or unbelief. So think here for a moment of the confidence and assurance that we have in this gospel, that we know with certainty that our destiny is secure. There's no guessing. We don't have to wonder if we've done enough or if we performed the right religious rituals. Christ has put an end to all the guessing games about our ultimate destiny. And friends, it's only here, only here in Christianity that we find a salvation that Paul tells us is unto life, a salvation unto life, that we will live with him. This is what we see described from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end, that we were created to live and to walk with God. And what was lost in the beginning, the life that Adam had in the beginning and was lost through the temptation of Satan, is now being restored as we walk in the light and one day is going to come to completion as God himself will be our light 
Remember, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. This God, he will be our God, and we will be his people. And all the curse of sin and death, when it's permanently and finally wiped away with all of our tears, we will be in the light with God forever. Living in the light now is preparing us to live in the light forever. And this is our destiny, that we might live with him. This God who is brilliant, light, and undefiled goodness, this is the surest, most life-giving ground upon which we can base our lives, that we are most free and most satisfied and most assured of our future when our lives are anchored to this God. So Paul says, live out your identity. You are a, chill, a child of the light. And as you do, be assured, be confident that your identity is firmly secure in God, his will, and his salvation. And this leads Paul finally here to two imperatives, two commands as application. So how do we live in the light? Well, we, we walk According to sober minds and self-controlled lives, we put on the armor of faith and hope and love. And Paul gives us how we are to do that in this world. Here's what he says, verse 11. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Encourage one another, build one another up just as you are doing. There's nothing more necessary in light of the second coming of Christ than for Christians to be full of encouragement. Why? Why is that the case? Because glory and blessing and infinite joy is coming. The morning star is about to rise. The shadows are fleeing away. And this is coming for us. And so we need to encourage one another to build one another up that we might enjoy the light that is coming. This imperative here that Paul gives us is a plural imperative. It's not just you do this individually, but all of us, we do this together. This is one of the most foundational, most life-giving things we can do as Christians. It's the essence of who we are and what we do as we gather with the communion of saints, that we would share in one another's gifts and graces to be encouraged and built up and ready for the day of Christ. This command to encourage one another, Paul has said that before previously in this book in chapter 4. And there Paul is explaining what happens when Christ returns and he says this, then, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. And then he says, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. See, the ministry of encouragement is not simply just being happy all the time. It's not just having a constant positivity. It's fundamentally a ministry of words. It's reminding one another of the grounds of our hope. It's reminding one another of our ultimate destiny that we will always be with the Lord in light and that we will have life in his name. So we need constant encouragement. It's so easy to become faint-hearted. 
A little bit later here in chapter 5, verse 14, Paul says to encourage the faint-hearted. It's so easy to become faint-hearted. The, the idea behind this being faint-hearted is that life is being squeezed out of you. It's the word that means you have a small soul. That's, that's what it means. That our joy, our hope, our confidence in God, it starts to get squeezed out as we see darkness surrounding us, as we see what seems like the forces of the enemy are winning. And as we get overwhelmed by these things, we start to think and we start to feel deep down that darkness is our ultimate destiny. How easy it is to become faint-hearted. And so Paul says, encourage those who are faint-hearted. Encourage those who are faint-hearted. That we know that we have a certain future that is fixed and secure, that is headed for the light. And so as Hebrews reminds us, we don't give up meeting together, but when we do, every time we meet together as the gathered body of Christ, what do we do? We encourage one another, we stir one another up to love and good works, and we do all of this as we see this day, this day of the Lord drawing near. So if you've ever wondered to yourself, you know, I going to church on Sunday, do, do I really need to go to church on Sunday? Do I really need to belong to a body? Do I have to go? Can't I just watch it online? Or can I just talk to, to Christians during the week? Well, friends, we need one another because our destiny is at stake. Our joy is at stake. Our sober-mindedness is at stake. You and I need others who know us, who know our ups and downs, who know us intimately to encourage one another to keep going, to hold fast to the truth, to not lose sight of the hope of the gospel. You need this, I need this more than we realize. And, and here's the, the flip side of that as well. Others need your encouragement just the same. And so we don't neglect meeting together, but when we do, fundamentally, we are to encourage one another and to build one another up. So thinking about this passage as we've looked at it tonight, how can we apply these things we, we've seen tonight? How do we live in light of the second coming? Well, number one, we live out our New Testament ethic, that we are children of light, and so we are to be who we are. We are to be who we are. We ought to desire what is good and right and true so we could say, as we think about identity, that I am most true to my identity as a child of light when I rightly value and rightly enjoy and share all that is good and right and true in this world. Walk in the light. Secondly, we guard our minds and we reorient our lives by cultivating faith in God. So think about how, how do you cultivate your faith in God? Well, you read, you read his word, you read good books, you listen to preaching, you listen to good sermons, you pray for yourself, for one another, you cultivate faith in God through God's ordinary means. And doing so, it, it, it gives us a mind that is clear and it reorients our lives to be shaped by these things. We cultivate faith in God, we love one another, and we have a hope for the future. So ask yourself this question tonight. Do these virtues mark my life? And if they do, are they increasing? How can you grow in your faith and your love and your hope? 
Number three, remind yourself continually of the ground and of the foundation for your life. The ground and the foundation. That if you are a believer in Christ, you are not destined for wrath, but rather for salvation. That your identity, your destiny is to live with God in fullness of joy forevermore. And so like the psalmist does repeatedly, we need to preach this to ourselves constantly. Soul, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my God and my salvation. Remind yourself of this. Preach this good news to yourself continually. And lastly, devote yourself to encouraging and building up the body of Christ. Encourage and build up the body of Christ. Encourage one another to continue in the faith. Keep believing, keep trusting, keep resting in Christ, Acts 14, 22. Encourage one another to walk in a manner worthy of God, to walk as a child of the light, 1 Thessalonians 2.12. Encourage one another to love with brotherly affection and to outdo one another in showing honor, Romans 12.10. Encourage one another to hold fast to the hope that is set before us, Hebrews 6.18. And as we're about to sing, encourage one another that we are not destined for wrath but for salvation and that we are almost home. In this journey hours together, we're almost home. Come faint of heart, we're almost home. So press on toward that blessed shore. Oh, praise the Lord. We are almost home. Let's pray together. God, I pray that as your people gather here tonight, that we would grow in faith and love and hope. That you would give us lives that are self-controlled and self-restrained, and that you would give us clear thinking, especially in light of all the chaos that surrounds us. So we pray tonight that you would cause every one of us here tonight to walk as children of the light. We pray that you would give us a sure and steady hope, that our eyes would be fixed upon it, and that as we do so, we would be transformed by your grace. Prepare us for what is coming. The light is coming. Christ is returning to judge the world and to remake this world. So give us that hope, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.